If you're someone who studies Shakespeare, I'd bet you're confident about where Shakespeare got the idea for King Lear. But what if I said this instead? You can draw a straight line between the story of King Lear and Cinderella. Do I have your attention? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Plutarch, Ovid, Hollinshed's Chronicles, those are the widely accepted sources of many of Shakespeare's plays and characters. But they're not the only ones. There are researchers who, over the years, have found another source of Shakespeare's plays. And that source is folktales. Stories passed along, mostly by word of mouth, over the centuries. The parallels these scholars find are remarkable. Between Cymbeline and a folktale called The Wager on the Wife's Chastity. Between All's Well, It Ends Well and The Sultan's Camp Follower. And, as we said, between King Lear and Cinderella. Charlotte Artise, chair of the English department at Agnes Scott College in Atlanta, is one of these folktale researchers. Her new book, Shakespeare and the Folktale, is an anthology that draws these parallels as vividly as you could want. We invited her in to talk in a podcast that we call The Strangest Tale That Ever I Heard. Charlotte Artis is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. What do we know about fairy tales in Shakespeare's time? How, how commonly they were told and, and what ones he was likely familiar with? There's some interesting clues in Shakespeare's plays. So in Hamlet, for example, Ophelia in her madness says, They say the owl was a baker's daughter. And this doesn't mean much to us now, but there was a folktale in which Jesus and St. Peter went walking around on earth disguised. They asked the baker's daughter for some bread, and either she said no or she gave them a kind of um, scanty portion. And so Jesus turned her into an owl. And so Shakespeare seems to have expected his audience to have picked up on just a really quick reference like that to a story. There's some other ones, too. Leonardo's daughter! If this were so, so, so Benedict, in like Much Ado About Nothing, at one point says, Like the old tale, my lord, it is not so, nor twas not so, but indeed, God forbid, it should be so. And that's kind of a refrain in the English folktale, Mr. Fox. Amen, if you love her. We have no idea what fairy tales or folk tales Shakespeare might have known that no one was recording them as told um, orally by people. That doesn't start until the 19th century. So we're in the position of triangulating from stories collected in the 19th century and later, and then written versions of them that date either from around Shakespeare's time or even earlier. Huh. We know and talk a lot about Plutarch and Hollinshed's Chronicles and the influence of them on Shakespeare, but not so much about folktales. So why haven't scholars explored these more focused on these? What, what do you think is behind that? I think there's a disciplinary divide that exists between literature scholars who are trained to study authors like Shakespeare 
And then from folklorists who specialize in the folk tales, I mean, there are different professional paths. I think another reason is that now we think of folk tales as something for children, as something that Disney movies are based on, not Shakespeare's plays. They're not based on folk tales. Shakespeare is the very center of the Western canon and is kind of a signifier of elite literary works. And so folk tales and Shakespeare are thought to be in our culture miles and miles apart. Oh, so it's that high culture, low culture dichotomy? The two shall not mix? Yes, I think so. And oral versus literate, that those are often held to be more distinct than they are. Which is so ironic because you're describing how people, you know, as we do now, they knew these folk tales and fairy tales and they would recognize these references that Shakespeare sprinkled his works with. And Shakespeare was like the you know, law and order SVU of his time. He was, so, he was, he was pop culture. It's like dropping a pop culture yes. reference into anything in play or a TV show, right? Mm-hmm. And you think about TV shows and movies that base themselves on the folktales that we still do know. You know, when a story is proven to be successful and long-lived, then as a good businessman, it makes sense for Shakespeare to base his plays on sort of wildly successful and popular stories, stories that have survived oral transmission over generations. Well, let's give people some really concrete examples and, and tick some off. What are some of the most obvious overlaps between these these folk tales and the, the plots of the plays? And you talk about one, um, I think, might be the first one that you encountered, uh, The Merchant of Venice. Let the forfeit be nominated for an equal part of your fair flesh to be cut off and taken in what part of your body it pleases me. (laughs) So you have a young man who is trying to woo a woman and he needs money in order to do this. This is in the folktale and also in Shakespeare's play. And yet he has um, no credit or collateral with which to borrow money. And so one creditor says... If you don't repay me, I'm going to repossess a pound um, of your flesh. A pound of man's flesh taken from a man is not so estimable, profitable neither, as flesh of muttons, beefs, or goats. <laughs> and of course, he doesn't pay it back on time. In the meantime, he's won the woman whom he was after, and... He is in prison, the young man, for not paying back this debt. And so his wife disguises herself as a lawyer, comes and rescues him from this dilemma with the same argument that we see Portia use in Shakespeare's play. A pound of that same merchant's flesh is thine. The court awards it and the law doth give it. Most rightful judge. And you must cut this flesh from off his breast. You can only cut exactly a pound and no more and no less. Or she says, you can take your pound of flesh, but no drop of blood. In the folktale, sometimes it's both, like in Shakespeare's play, or sometimes it's one or the other. This bond doth give thee here no jot of blood. The words expressly are, a pound of flesh. Take then thy bond. Take thou thy pound of flesh, but in the cutting it, if thou dost shed one drop of Christian blood, thy lands and goods are, by the laws of Venice, confiscate unto the state of Venice. That really is a remarkable level of detail 
for uh, these, the folktale and the play to correspond. Justice, be assured, thou shalt have justice more than thou desirest. We see that in a Moroccan Jewish folktale and also in, I believe, the Chilean version. But then when we read the folktales, they're often so different in the smaller details. The synopsis I gave a moment ago was meant to show the correspondences, but in the Chilean version, there's a mysterious woman named White Onion, and she will says that she will marry the man who can go to bed with her and not fall asleep. And it turns out that, you know, many men think that they can absolutely do this and they come from far and wide, but they all fall asleep. So this is a very different beginning than what we have in a very different tone. It's very dark. It is, yes. It's dark and sexy and menacing. And I think that's true for a lot of these stories. And I think this is one reason why we've forgotten the very folk tales that Shakespeare used is because now we think of folk tales as entertainment for children. We don't give them the ones that involve um, especially sex. I mean, the Grimm's can get pretty uh, dark and violent, but we don't give them stories about adultery and courtship and the problems of marriage. Yeah, let's go through a couple more of these because it really is fascinating the uh, how, what Shakespeare picks up on and what he what he doesn't. And that's interesting in Taming of the Shrew. You say that there's a Danish version of a folktale called The Most Obedient Wife. What happens in that story that we find in Shakespeare? Hortensio, have you told him all her faults? I know she is an irksome, brawling scold. If that be all, masters, I hear no harm. Well, we've got three daughters, and the oldest one is known for being difficult to get along with. And no one wants to marry her until finally a stranger comes and says that he'll marry this older daughter, even though her father, frankly, advises him against it and says, I wouldn't marry her to anyone. For my daughter Catherine, this I know, she is not for your turn. The more my grief. And then he leaves and he comes back on the day of the wedding. He's not wearing appropriate clothes. He's not brought a carriage. He is riding his horse and has his hunting dog with him. And then the husband refuses to stay for the wedding feast just as Petruchio takes Catherine away. And they they go to the husband's house and they get along fairly well, but he makes his wife in the folktale agree to patently false statements like he says, oh, that was a, f- a fine flock of storks flying overhead. And his wife says, no, dear, those are ravens. And he, he won't allow her to go visit her family, turns the carriage back around. And this happens a few times until she agrees to whatever he says, even though it's false. How bright and goodly shines the moon. The moon? The sun? It is not moonlight now. I say it is the moon that shines so bright. I know it is the sun that shines so bright. Now, by my mother's sun, and that's myself, it shall be moon or star or what I list, or ere I journey to your father's house. But in the end, there's a wager on who is the most obedient wife out of these three sisters. And the main character, you know, our shrew, she wins that bet. And that's exactly how Shakespeare's play ends as well. This is just an appalling story, this, this folk tale. I mean, there's a whole part towards the end when the husband takes his wife on a trip and um, the, the dog makes him angry, so he kills the dog. And then his door, his mm-hmm. horse acts up and or he doesn't like what the horse is doing, and so he kills the horse. And then he makes the, the his new um, 
his new bride that just got married, uh, that he makes her carry the saddle, and and she's just right. so intimidated. She does what he's. I mean, mm-hmm. all throughout these tales, it's, women are constantly having to take their clothes off too and be right. publicly naked and stuff. It's really. <laughs> fascinating. It is. And that thing about killing the animals, too, you know, and and in some of them, one of them, actually, the Danish version specifies that the wife has the saddle on her back and she's carrying it, which always makes me think of Petruchio's saying that Catherine is my ox, my ass, my goods, my household stuff. So, you know, right. she is only figuratively a, a beast of burden. And there's references. Shakespeare does not have the, the bits where the husband kills his animals in order to intimidate the wife. But there are a couple of illusions so we don't get to see Petruchio and Catherine on the voyage home, but a servant comes in and is telling the other servant about what a dreadful trip it was. And he starts by saying, you know, and then we set forth. In Primus, we came down a foul hill, my master riding behind my mistress. Both of one horse. But what's that to thee? And the second servant interrupts and says, both on one horse. And the point of the joke, of course, is that he has anticipated the folktale. And the folktale, they have to both be riding the same horse so that when that horse dies, the bride is stuck carrying that saddle. So uh, the second servant is expecting the story from the folktale about the trip. Right. And when you, so when we know that this is an allusion to a fairy tale, there's a lot of wink-wink going on, right? Shakespeare knows that the audience yes. knows what's, what he's referring to, and the audience knows that Shakespeare's mm-hmm. really drawing on this material. There's so many more layers to the story. Do you think yes. that's what the intention is with that interchange with the servants? Or is it that they're tapping into this deep, dark Freudian underbelly of, of these folktales? Mm. Oh, I think both and. I definitely think there's some play with the audience's expectations that we might expect if we saw a movie that was making a reference to Red Riding Hood or something like that. You know, are you going to go along with the audience's expectations or are you going to thwart them? And so Shakespeare's having a joke about thwarting the audience's expectations. And I think that, I mean, in some ways, Shakespeare's play starts to seem more lighthearted and comic when you look at the folk tales. The Scottish one is is more brutal than the Danish one. And it's, um, I think you can almost see the play as a revision of the folk tale that cuts out some of the bitterest, uh, most gruesome elements of the folktale. So uh, uh, do you see that as like a process of civilization or? Or maybe just the demands of genre. King Lear is just devastating to anybody, but especially when you know that the original story ended much more happily, both in the folktale and in the sort of legendary history. And so I think Shakespeare doesn't always kind of civilize his material. Certainly in the case of King Lear, he makes it tragic and almost unbearable in a way that the folktale does not, does not even approach. Okay, and King Lear is what folktale? Cinderella? Yes, it is part of a, this folktale is called Love Like Salt, and it's part of what scholars call the Cinderella cycle, just meaning that it's a group of tales that then have obvious subgroupings. And so Love Like Salt, like other Cinderella tales, involves a young woman who's kicked out of her rightful place, has to work as a servant, appears in wonderful clothes at a party or ball given by a prince, and then she eventually marries the prince after he seeks her out. 
none of this <laughs> none of this business with the balls and the prints and the dresses is in King Lear. But the opening episode of Love Like Saul, the Cinderella tale type, is that a, a man calls his three daughters to him and he says, Which of you shall we say doth love us most? And the eldest daughter says something like, I love you as much as I love sugar. And the second daughter says something like, I love you as much as I love honey. And the third youngest daughter says, I love you like I love salt. And he's horribly offended, the father, and he banishes the daughter from his house and disinherits her. There are a lot of them, right? I'm just looking at a list. There's uh, As Dear as Salt uh, from Germany, The Necessity of Salt from Austria, The Value of Salt from Italy. There are a bunch from Italy. There's even some from yes. Pakistan. The Princess Who Loved Her Father Like Salt is from India. Right. These are, it's a widespread tale. Yeah. And why are these, is this variation of the same story showing up all over the world? That's interesting. There was a, when folk tale studies just got started, that was a main question that they had is, are these stories being diffused and transmitted or are they sort of originating independently? Is it like polygenesis? And I'm not sure that we can ever know. My own sense is that for something as particular as that opening episode of Love Like Salt, my money would be on gradual transmission. For something like, more generally, a Cinderella story in which a young woman falls from her rightful position but then regains it with marriage, if we want to talk it at that level of abstraction, we do see that in China, for example, and in Egypt. And I would be willing to believe that that is a case of independent genesis, but these are very difficult, you know, maybe impossible things to prove. Um, this gets to into a lot of onion skin um, uh, <laughs> stuff. I mean, you write about the comedy. The layers. Right. Yeah. You write about the comedy of errors. Uh, and that's known to come from a second century Roman play. But you point out that that, that second century Roman play co- itself comes from a folktale. Trace that back for us. Yes. And Shakespeare's audience immediately picked up on the fact that the comedy of errors was based on Plautus's play, The Menaikmi, which is a second century BCE Roman play. And in that story, there are twins who have been separated from birth, and one of them finds his way to the other one's um, hometown. And then there are, of course, comic misunderstandings in which one is mistaken for the other. But that play, a classicist and folklore scholars know, such as Bill Hansen and Sophie Trenkner, that... The play itself seems to derive from this folktale, The Twins or Blood Brothers, in which, again, two identical young men are separated. Um, One falls into trouble. His twin has to come and find him and is mistaken for his twin even by... Um, his brother's wife. Him, ...that he did buffet thee, and in his blows denied my house for his, me for his wife. Did you converse, sir, with this gentlewoman? What is the course and drift of your compact? I, sir, I never saw her till this time. Villain, thou liest, for even her very words didst thou deliver to me on the mart. I never spake with her in all my life. How could she thus then call us by our names, unless it be by inspiration? How ill is And it? what Shakespeare does is he adds elements from the folktale back into his adaptation. And so it's the he he's recognizing the Menaikmi as a version of the twins or blood brothers, just as 
scholars today have done. And then he's adding in material. So there is a, a sorceress in the folktale. And so there's no um, actual witches in the Comedy of Errors, but every female character is accused of being a sorceress at some point. Avoid then, fiend. What tells thou me of supping? Thou art, as you are all a sorceress, I conjure thee to leave me and be gone. And so it's a way, I think, of Shakespeare to nod back to that folktale to see the kinship between Plautus's play, Menaikmi, and the folktale itself and to build on that. And these, this cycle of folktales is uh, the twins or, or blood brothers. Yes. They're all variations on that. And one of them is Black Jack and White Jack. Yes. Which comes from the, is the Caribbean? The Caribbean, yes, Antigua. And that one's fascinating because we, we see in a Renaissance Italian example where it, the queen has a miraculous birth and she has a son and then a servant also, at just the same time, she has a son, and these two boys look identical, even though they have two different mothers. And so the same thing happens in Blackjack and White Jack, and you have a white lady, and then you have um, a black woman who is, the, the phrase is, supposed to be her maid, but they both drink of this magic fountain, they both get pregnant, and they have boys who are identical to each other, except one has dark skin and one has light. And so that's fascinating. But then, you know, their skin color does not prevent them from being mistaken for one another. Even the wife of Black Jack takes White Jack to be her husband when he comes in search of his missing brother. And so it's funny. It sets up this class and race divide, and then it seems to erase it completely. You know, it really makes, drives home this point that when you're reading Shakespeare or watching the play, of course you miss a lot. No one can get everything. But now I think we're missing even more than I thought before. (laughs) But it's so fun and pleasurable to regain that knowledge, you know, to read these old stories. They're just fun. You know, these folk tales that have come down to us. And I think that it does enable us to approach the position of one of a member of Shakespeare's original audience if we recover these stories. And they're they're fun to recover. And I love to teach Shakespeare in the folktale as a subject because it's a great way to deal with Shakespeare anxiety. If we read a handful of folktales first before we read the play, then students have a kind of preview of at least one strand of the plot and they're looking for something. They're looking for the parallels. And I think it works really well in a teaching context. Yeah, and also this idea that they Shakespeare is a storyteller just as all of us were storytellers around the, the, the fireplace. It, it, it makes me think of uh, we had Peter Brook on the podcast a while back, and he talked mm-hmm. about going to India and seeing a storyteller in a courtyard with a crowd of hundreds of people around him. And all the storyteller had for a prop was a stick. And he just... Right held these people in thrall, just captive, with this story and his stick. And, you know, Brooke read into that that it's it's clear you can really evoke anything at all if, if you find a way of recognizing that whatever play we're looking at or we're, we're doing, we're just storytellers. Um, and you seem right. to be emphasizing that with digging up these folktale uh, origins. Yes, and if we imagine Shakespeare's stage, I mean, it's 
there's a lot to be said for the parallel between a storyteller standing in the midst of a group of people and with his verbal art and his physical art conveying this story. And I don't want to overstate, there's definitely a difference between a scripted play put on by a number of people and the the traditional Ori storyteller. But Shakespeare's art was an art of memory and speech, just like the storyteller's art. Although it's for many times in history, people haven't thought about Shakespeare that way. Uh, the, the Folgers director, Mike Whitmore, talks about people thinking this idea of Shakespeare as existing in the isolation chamber of the genius. That's <laughs> the way he put, puts right. it. Um, what do you think it is about modern scholars like you and modern times that were able to see that Shakespeare just wasn't in any kind of isolation chamber of genius? I think that for a while now we've been getting away from the great man theory of history and looking more at movements that we find people were working. There were a number of people working independently on inventions, say, at the same time. I think we're more aware and we're more able to do the kind of research that allows us to see a bigger picture, to see more of the context, to think more in terms of a culture enabling an individual to achieve a certain level of art or a certain scientific insight. So what do you what have you found that most surprised you or the most surprising direction that Shakespeare took one of these uh, folk tales? Oh, let's see. The last play that I consider in the book, The Tempest, he starts off with what I think would have been recognizable to his audience from the oral tale, The Magic Flight. In The Magic Flight stories, what we have is a, a young man who falls into the power of a wizard. But the daughter of this wizard feels sympathy for him and helps him out, and he and the, the wizard's daughter get married. So we can see a premise that's very similar to The Tempest. But Shakespeare, once he gets that story going, essentially cuts it right off. So in the folktale, the daughter also has magical abilities and these impossible tasks. This my mean task. That the sorcerer has given the young man to have an excuse to kill him she's able to do with her magic. Whereas in The Tempest... I must remove some thousands of these logs and pile them up. We have Prospero telling Ferdinand that he must move these thousands of logs. And this is a version of the impossible task. Often in the folktales, actually, the young man has to clear a forest. But Miranda is no help at all. Pray set it down and rest you. And this burns. Weep for having wearied you. And we kind of end up with the most unmagical flight maybe in Western literature where Prospero, instead of having a magic showdown with his daughter, he gives up his magic completely. And and why do you choose that example? Well, it's a little bit like Hitchcock's Psycho where you think that Janet Lee's character is going to be the main figure in the movie and then after 20 minutes or so, she's dead, you know, and we start off with this other story completely. We think it's going to be about her stealing the money, um, but that's all over very quickly. And I think there was a similar, I don't know, whiplash effect on the audience of Psycho at the time and that Shakespeare's audience might have felt, well, oh, yeah, I see where this is going. Nope, you know, that just cut off that possibility. Oh, so the way that he pulls the rug out from under this. Yes. Expectation. Yes. 
And I think that's an act of genius. And, you know, Hitchcock's a, a genius of his form as well. So it's a similar move. Oh, that's such a great example. I Often when I think of Psycho, I forget about that whole beginning to the movie. Right. How did you start this whole uh, search for the origins of folktales in Shakespeare? Did you trip over something that made you think, oh, wait, I got to, what? I, that sounds familiar. <laughs> I did. It all began with Led Zeppelin, as a matter of fact. Um, about 15 years ago, I was driving in my car. I know it sounds improbable. And I was listening to the Led Zeppelin song, Gallows Pole. In the song, what happens is there's a man about to be executed, and his family, he asks his family to come and bribe the hangman, but they don't have any money and they can't do it. So then he asks his sister to sleep with the hangman in exchange for his release. And the sister does. She has sex with the executioner, but the executioner then hangs her brother anyway. And I thought, wow, that sounds a lot like the plot for Measure for Measure, but it ends tragically, like the play would have without the Duke's interference and sort of creation of a happy ending. And I thought, well, furthermore, this Gallows Pole song sounds like a folk song to me. So I looked it up in the liner notes, and sure enough, it is, was listed as traditional for the lyrics. And I kind of looked around to see if I could make a connection, but really all that happened was I would then play Gallows Pole for my students when we were reading Measure for Measure, you know, as I was taking attendance or whatever. But I think that primed me to then have my eyes open when I came across something I was reading that said, Jan Harald Brunvan, the folklorist, and he is best known for urban legends for sort of coining that concept, that he did his doctoral work on the folktale, The Taming of the Shrew, which Shakespeare adapts. And I thought, well, that's the first I've heard of it. You know, I had no idea there was a Taming of the Shrew folktale. So then I looked up Jan Brunvan's work, and he had a footnote that said, oh, a number of Shakespeare's plays are based on folktale. There's Cymbeline and The Wager on the Wife's Chastity. He mentioned King Lear and Love Like Salt. That was when I became astonished that there, it was definitely the tip of an iceberg. And I went and started to pursue this seriously and just found more and more plays that had a link, a strong link to a folktale. First, you must be a very popular teacher. <laughs> Second, I don't know anybody else whose line of scholarship on Shakespeare has started with Led Zeppelin. Have you have you run into anyone else? <laughs> no, I haven't. But if anyone out there hears this and that happened to them as well, please send me an email. <laughs> we, have, we have much to discuss. <laughs> well, just um, one more thought. Because we talk a lot on this podcast about what makes Shakespeare enduring or uh, universal. Mm. And I can't help but think, Oh, well, fairy tales, folk tales are similar in that way. They they connect with people yes. across all cultures. They tap into these deep unconscious fears and emotions. H how do you understand the connection? What do you think the, the, the folklore contributes to Shakespeare's appeal? I'm not sure if I know how it works, but it certainly seems that there are some stories that catch in our imaginations and they are sort of retold and retold, and they cross linguistic and cultural boundaries. And Shakespeare's plays have done that as well. Catherine Belsey's book, Why Shakespeare, really kind of tackles this question also. But I'm 
when we think about what is it about the stories that catches, you mentioned Freud earlier. I mean, the Bruno Bettelheim's idea of the fairy tale is that it rehearses the whole Oedipal family dynamic and that he finds that again and again in the stories and says these stories endure because they help children who are going through this psychological process, which in Bettelheim's mind is universal. And there's plenty of Shakespeare's plays that have nothing to do with folk tales. I mean, Othello has been adapted and adapted. And as far as I can see, there's really no folktale element to it. So not all of Shakespeare's success is due to folktale sources. So I don't know how it works, but I think Shakespeare saw it working and adapted it. And I think also, and I talk about this in relation to Cymbeline, he also sort of returned to a handful of motifs over and over again. You know, the the woman who dresses as a man, the siblings who have been long separated but find each other. He reassembles these sorts of narrative elements to make a new play in the same way that we see motifs recur in folk tales like the youngest of three, the youngest of three sons or the youngest of three daughters. So I think Shakespeare, his methods in some ways were similar to the ways in which folk tales come into being and recombine and develop. Well, thank you so much for this. It really makes me think about the, the, the plots and the plays differently. It also made me think about Led Zeppelin differently. <laughs> Charlotte Artis <laughs> so is chair of the English so department much. at Agnes Scott oh, College in Atlanta. Her new anthology, Shakespeare and the Folktale, was published by Princeton University Press in 2019. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, The Strangest Tale That Ever I Heard, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Kevin Rinker at public radio station WABE in Atlanta, Georgia. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. And if you are, we hope you'll consider rating and reviewing the podcasts on whatever platform you get this podcast from. That helps get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. We'd really appreciate your help letting people know what we're doing. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.